want you to go with me over to Psalm 77, uh, verse 14, and Acts chapter 4, verse 30. And uh, how many with the raised hand could say you could use a miracle or you know somebody that needs one? Yes. Amen? Yes, amen. Psalm 77, verse 14, you are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. Amen. What does he do? He performs miracles and his power is on display. Uh, we believe that he's just getting started. That this end time move of God is going to be very much marked by signs, wonders, miracles, uh, healings. Jackie mentioned this in prayer this morning about the connection between this and deliverance. You're going to see a, a huge uh, you know, component of this in the area of deliverances. Miracles from things that people are bound up from. All kinds of people in a, in a demoniac state, they don't have to have chains on themselves and be living somewhere in a cemetery. They can live and function around you and me every single day. And they need deliverance. Amen? Scripture says in Acts 4.30, Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. That was the prayer of the early church. And how many believe it should be the prayer of the church today? Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. He said in his word, I am the Lord thy God. I change not. So he is the same. He is consistent. This is still his agenda, still his will. And write this down. Doing miracles has nothing to do with him proving his divinity. He said, he that comes to him must believe that he is. And that is a reward of those that diligently seek him. He does not do miracles to prove who he is. He does miracles as a revelation of his nature. It's his nature to do miracles. Say it with me. Birds fly. Fish swim. Dogs bark. Cows moo. God does miracles. A dog does not say, I'm barking so you'll know that I'm a dog. A fish doesn't swim so that you know, hey, I'm a fish. They're just doing what they do. Amen. And your God actually has a revelation of his nature. And of course, goodness, as we sang about tonight, is part of that. But the miraculous is. He just, that's what he does from creation on down. In fact, understand what a miracle is. It's what we would call a divine inbreaking, a divine inbreaking into this earth by God for the purposes of demonstrating not his divinity, but his will, his word, and his covenant. Say that with me. His word, his will, and his covenant. His word, his will, and covenant are relevant. He is who he is, whether you believe it or not. So he'll do miracles to confirm his word. He, of course, will fulfill his word and he will keep his word. He'll do miracles to keep his covenant. Ultimately, why was there a Red Sea? Because the people deserved it. There's no miracle at the Red Sea because the people deserve it. There's a miracle there because God keeps covenant. Aren't you glad for that tonight? Because if, if miracles depend on our performance, we would still be in Egypt. Amen. Making bricks with no straw. Hallelujah. Amen. Everything about Christianity is miraculous. Everything. It should be no surprise that we be people that believe in the miraculous and that we should expect the miraculous. In other words, the miraculous for the child of God should be the norm, not the exception. That's right. In Western culture right now, it's the exception rather than the norm. 
But think about where you came from. The creation narrative is not make-believe. It's not a fable. It's not a story. It's truth. And it's all supernatural. How did this place come to be? Because the Lord spoke it into existence. Everything about our existence, everything about our faith is supernatural. It's miraculous. What about the incarnation? Explain that one. We call it the Immaculate Conception because she was conceived by the Holy Spirit. It's miraculous. Everything about our faith and our structure is miraculous. From His ministry to His death and His resurrection, His ascension and His return. Your new birth is supernatural. Some of you were big rascals before you got born again. Amen. Anybody want to testify? Moving right along. Hallelujah. And you are not that person. You're a species of, of people, a creation that never existed before. And that's a miracle. It's a miracle that you actually want to come to church on Wednesday night in this country right now. Look at somebody and say, you are my miracle tonight. Hallelujah. I look at you. I see a miracle, bless the Lord. Why? Because it's just not in the heart of people to go after God. And every voice out there is telling you that, you know, you should do anything but serve and submit to the Lord. I may understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a miracle. I wish you could keep a consciousness about yourself as a Pentecostal, as a charismatic, that you received something that was supernatural. And every time you open up your big blab mouth and speak in tongues, it's a miracle. I want you just to just to park there for a moment and contemplate this. It is a vocal miracle of God every single time. You run around saying, I don't see any miracles. I don't know where's a miracle. Just start speaking in tongues. That is a vocal miracle every time. How many like to see more miracles? Then speak in tongues more and you'll experience more miracles. Every time it's a miracle. Say this with me. Tongues is a vocal miracle. You're not speaking a language you learned. The baptism itself is miraculous. Tongues are miraculous. The gifts of the Spirit, miraculous. Everything. And how many know His second coming is going to be miraculous as well? Everything. So we're not talking about, oh, we just, uh, you know, suddenly we believe in miracles. We don't have this heritage. We don't have this legacy. We really don't have this, you know, this tradition in the Word of God. No, the people of God have always seen the miraculous hand of God. And so we shouldn't you know, think in terms of, well, this is the exception and we've got to really push in and maybe get God to do something he doesn't want to do. This, this flows naturally from the hand of God. You're going to find out tonight that God's not the problem. That's all practices. God's not the problem. The Word's not the problem. People are the problem. Let's get a little more personal than that. Say it. The Word's not the problem. God's not the problem. I'm the problem. Is that okay? It's just being honest, isn't it? I mean, we can let ourselves wander down the road of, you know, what, what this and what that and how this and how that. But the reality is, at the end of the day, we can never lay God's feet. Anything that he has already said in his word that he would do. So let's get into this a little bit deeper today. The story of Jairus and his daughter, the synagogue ruler, and the woman with the issue of blood. How I many you know that's a long time to suffer with anything? If you're not careful, you'll look at these two stories and you'll see them as separate. I want you for the purposes of understanding things that block or hinder the miraculous power in your life to see them as a unit tonight. 
I want you to see them as a revelation of the heart of God for us dealing with obstacles that may come along the path of the believer to stop us from seeing that miracle that we all believe for and that we're, we're expecting God to do that we need in our lives. The narrative teaches you about the obstacles to our miracle. And the first thing you've got to realize tonight is the greatest obstacles are not external. The greatest, the greatest obstacles to our miracle are internal. They're within us, not without us. An obstacle is just something that blocks our way or prevents or hinders progress. Our obstacles may be in the way, but they don't have to stay in the way. But you and I have to be alert and awake to how the enemy will use those obstacles to rob us of the miracle of God. In other words, we're very much programmed to look outside of ourselves for a solution. This, this combined narrative, the daughter of the synagogue ruler and the woman issue of blood, collectively they show us that the problem's not on the outside of us. Is that okay? Just look at somebody and smile and say, I love you, but you're the problem. You just, you know, you're, you're the problem. Not, nothing personal. <laughs> Some of you didn't do that with much enthusiasm. Let's try that again. Amen. Smile at somebody else and tell them I love you, but you're the problem. The first thing we've got to understand is the greatest obstacles are internal. I'm not saying there aren't external obstacles out there. There are all kinds of things trying to hinder our forward movement into the things of God and into the kind of move of God that He wants. But the truth of the matter is, you and I have a lot of things we have to overcome on the inside of us. And if we do, we're setting ourselves up for a victory. Yes. And it's okay, isn't it? Yes. It's okay to approach the things of God with a humble attitude and spirit and say, Lord, teach me. Yes. Say that with me, Lord, teach me. I don't care how old you are, how long you've been in the things of God, how long you've been saved, how long you've been in the ministry, you should always be teachable. One of the greatest blessings I have all year is sitting under the Word of God, going to several conferences and watching people that are, you know, they're not twice my age anymore, but at one time they were. <laughs> I said at one time they were twice my age, and I kind of caught up with some of them. But to see them sitting there on the front row with a Bible in their hand and a notebook and a pen, when they're the ones that God has used to transform this world and lead this nation, I'm thinking to myself, you know, now that's what we need to be like. Come on, say it with me. It's teachable all the days of our lives. That's the way we want to be. And it's impressive to me. And no wonder these people in the body of Christ that are, that are now generals and older in the faith, no wonder they just continue to receive great revelation from God. No wonder they continue to make a mark that can't be erased because they're not afraid to say, I haven't received it all. And that's the attitude we have to have when we come here on Wednesday night. Say good amen. That's the attitude we have to have when we submit you know, to our Sunday school class or that Sunday school teacher or that small group, whatever it is, that God at any moment in time can give you a life-transforming revelation. And it's all because you were teachable. And we know from Scripture that you can have somebody teachable and a Pharisee sitting right next to them and one receive life-changing truth and the other one not receive a thing. Come on, say it. It's entirely up to us. Come on, say it again. It's entirely up to us if we want to receive or not. So I want to, 
I want to read this uh, story to you. We're going to read it in, in sections tonight, Mark chapter 5, if you don't know where this is at. We're looking at Mark's version of it. And we're going to start around verse 21. But before I, I dive into that, I want you to write a few things down. I want to talk to you about the role of the synagogue ruler because this is critical to the teaching tonight. Um, Today, if you were to be a part of a synagogue, you would have what they would call a synagogue president. This person has great leadership responsibility. In Jesus' day, the various synagogues had what they would call a synagogue ruler. There might be rulers, plural, depending on the size of it, where it was at, whatever. But in this case, this man is the synagogue ruler in this particular area that Jesus was teaching and ministering in. And understand this, that the ruler is appointed by the elders, and it comes with great power and great authority. This person is charged with great power and great authority as the ruler of the synagogue. Um, He would have been very successful, very sharp, very well trained, very well educated in the faith, and had a lot of influence in in the faith community. In other words, everybody would have known who he was, Everybody would have respected him. There wouldn't have been any question if he showed up on the scene in the city or inside, you know, the worship center, the building, the facility. Everybody knew who he was. The second thing to understand is he's responsible for those buildings and facilities. That was his charge. They put it on him to make sure they were functional, make sure everything was in order, make sure that they were tended to, make sure that everything was in its place. He was also responsible for the contents of the building. You know that the, uh, the artifacts of worship are critical to the Jewish history. We understand from the tabernacle system, you just didn't mess around with the things of God. There's a great reverence and holiness attached to whatever it was, whether it was the scroll they opened up to read, you know, or the furnishings, whatever it was. There's a big deal here. Now, we're not talking about the synagogue equals the tabernacle, and that's not the point. We're talking about the spirit of excellence and responsibility, sense of responsibility they would have had. You remember the story when somebody thought they'd reach out and, and stabilize the Ark of the Covenant when they threw it in the back of a manure cart, and wham, the power of God emanated from that Ark, and that was the end of the story. Why? They were not transporting the Ark according to what? The Word of the Lord. So there's a deep built-in respect for not just the facility of the people, but also the articles of worship and the elements and the things that were inside that particular building, the furnishings. Again, not at the same order as you would the Holy of Holies. You understand that because it's not the same thing. At the same time, they're responsible for the contents. They're also responsible for arranging and organizing worship. You can see some pastoral similarities here, but... There's going to be a certain reading. There's going to be a certain song. There's going to be a certain order. There's going to be a certain speaker. If Jesus was invited to come in and speak, for example, as a guest rabbi, he would be the one who would authorize that. Jesus didn't come in and say, I'm going to teach right now. He would have been invited everywhere he went. How many understand? They invited him in, but they wouldn't invite him back necessarily. Once they heard what he had to say, he didn't get that return invitation. Uh, Jerry Savelle one time was invited to a high church, the liturgical church, and they told him he had to climb these steps up until what he called a little bird's nest. And you, you know, years ago they built these so that the speaker could speak out above the people without a PA system that people could hear. But somehow this tradition lingered on. And so they had him go into this box, and he's standing in this box, and there's a little cover on top of it, like a little roof. And he's preaching and said, now you will wear this robe, and they gave him a robe, and you will stand in that box, and you will not come down, you will not interact with the people, you will not pray with the people. And he's about five to ten minutes into his message where he threw off the robe, came out of the bird box, and just ministered to the people. 
lay hands on him, and people getting healed, people getting blessed. And then, needless to say, he was never invited back. So Jesus was not just coming in and saying, well, I'm going to speak here and I'm going to do this. He would have been invited. You know, in Luke chapter 4, for example, when the scroll from Isaiah was handed to him, he was in, you know, he was in cooperation and honor for those people that were actually in charge of that synagogue. And they handed him the scroll, and he read, and he preached. And how many understand, by the time he got done talking about Naaman the Syrian, he got healed of leprosy. And the woman, who was not a Jew, who got taken care of in the time of the famine, they were furious with him, enough to kill him. Could you imagine being so mad at the preacher after a sermon, you wanted to take him out and throw him into the lake and take a lake off the bridge over here? Some of you have thought about it, haven't you? Just be okay. <laughs> but I mean, they're in church. And the next thing they want to do is kill him. So I understand how this dynamic works. This person would have been responsible for the organizing and the arranging of the services in the synagogue. Very similar to what a pastor would do today. And that's understandable as you kind of you try to bridge the culture and bridge the religion. But understand this. He was also responsible to maintain the manners and the customs and the laws and the regulations that, uh, you know, affected worship and involvement and participation. And you and I know, for example, that uh, if you were in a certain condition, you weren't allowed to be out among the people. And one of those conditions was the woman who what? Had an issue of blood. Another condition would be a leper in, in, a, in a leper situation. So this is important to understand what this man was, what he did, and what his responsibilities were in this story. So go over with uh, Mark 5 for a moment. And let's just uh, let's start out with verse, uh, verse 21. We're going to read a big portion of this. So just come along and let the Lord minister to you. In verse 21, when Jesus had again crossed over uh, by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. And then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she may, will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. So far, so good. Isn't this great? So we know that the man came in humility. We know that he sought the Lord. We know that he was a believer. We know that he recognized something in Jesus that maybe some of the others didn't recognize. He's already operating at a plane of revelation that other people aren't. And Jesus was willing to go with him. Now watch this. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. And had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew what? Worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. There's a proximity of the faith of the Jew that uh, they equated, you know, the, the, the cloth itself with containing anointing. Because of its proximity to Scripture and the truth and the authority of God, she said to herself, if I just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. And immediately when she did, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was free from her suffering. Now, when you've had something for 12 years, you know when something has changed. And something had changed at that moment. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. 
Then, he, then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with her, told him the whole truth. Everybody say the whole truth. In other words, I have had a bleeding issue for 12 years. I spent a lot of money, and I get worse and worse at the care of the physicians, what they do, what they can do, but I'm not getting any better. And I heard about you, and here's what I did. Told, her, told him the whole truth, and he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you or made you whole. Go in peace, go in wholeness, and be freed from your suffering. Now, I want you to get this picture here. You've got disciples with Jesus, but who else is also with Jesus? Jairus. Now watch this. There are three obstacles you're going to have to overcome. These are internal. If you're going to maintain a faith that's going to receive that miracle that God has for you, that God has for me. How many of you believe God still does miracles? But watch this. First of all, you're going to have to ignore your religion. And before you get all defensive, everybody in this room has an element of religion that's still there. And every once in a while, in the wrong moment, it'll scream out. And your job is to crucify it. Are you here today? We're talking about our tendency towards legalism and religion and man-made rules and things that God never ordained for you or for me, and yet they are there. Customs and cultures and, and beliefs and systems, sometimes false beliefs that don't even line up with Scripture. And here's a situation where, you know, you've got to value the miracle more than you do your rules, customs, and cultures. You want, that, you want that miracle more than you want to look right to somebody. Watch this. This rich young ruler, this uh, synagogue ruler rather, had a decision to make here. And just to show you what he should have done, I want you to go over to Luke chapter 14. Just in terms of his legalistic responsibilities... How should he have handled this situation? Everybody say, there's Jesus, his disciples, and there's Jairus. He sees the whole thing. He's in proximity to this unclean woman, just like the rest of them. If she's close enough to touch Jesus, she's close enough to touch even Jairus. In Luke chapter 13... I told you 14, didn't I? Just checking to see if you're listening out there. Hallelujah. Yes, amen. When you're there, say, I am there. In, uh, in verse 10, on a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. And a woman was there who had been crippled by spirit for what? 18 years. Everybody say, culture, custom, legalism, religion. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Look at verse 14. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. The whom? The synagogue ruler said to the people. Here comes the custom. Here comes the religion. Here comes the legalism. Jesus never intended for our animals not to be fed and watered on the Sabbath. He never intended for people to somehow not receive the best of God on the Sabbath. If there's a day we can receive the best of God, it ought to be on the Sabbath. When we're in rest and mindful of Him. But the ruler says, this ruler said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. Like anybody was getting healed in that synagogue in those days. 
If somebody was getting healed, wouldn't she already be healed? See the stupidity of religion. Don't come and get healed on the Sabbath. Come during the normal six days. No, we have healing revival every six days. No, nobody was getting healed there. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, of, uh, daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath kept bound these eighteen long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Now check this out. Here's a synagogue ruler doing his legalistic religious duty, calling her out, calling Jesus out. Here's another one with a long-standing issue. She's impure. Twelve years perpetually impure. And instead of calling her out, he sits there and he makes the decision that I, this is not going to be the obstacle to my miracle. You'd be amazed how many people are willing to give up God's best to be right. Give up God's best to be religious. Give up God's best to be legalistic. Give up God's best to control people. You know, when you want a miracle, you just need to focus on that miracle. And he does the complete opposite of this other synagogue ruler. Both of them knew what their, their jobs were. Both of them knew what their responsibilities were. But one saw what? One saw, you know, this is an opportunity for God to be glorified and for people to be ministered to. The other one just saw his duty, his regulations, his laws. Amen? When it comes to the things of God, always, always put people before programs and paperwork. Come on, say it with me. People, people, then programs, then paperwork. This kind of person puts, you know, paperwork first. People are at the very bottom of the people he came to die for. He came to, to sanctify. He, he called, you know, his own. Bring them out of darkness and, and into light. Indignant. Indignation is a very complex emotion that uh, is triggered typically in social environments. I want you to see this for a moment. This man had a mixture of anger and disgust as an, as an emotional tipping point. I don't, I don't believe for a second that this did not cross Jairus' mind. Watch this. I just told him my daughter's sick. I just told him she's going to die. And here comes this woman. She shouldn't even be out. She comes in and intersects us trying to get to the house. So this daughter, you can imagine the things in the natural that would be going through his mind. How dare you crowd in here and stop him? This is an emergency situation. We need to take action right now. He could have seen this as an interruption in this situation. I'm telling you, that's exactly what the enemy wants you and me to do, is get out into the realm of indignance, out into emotion, reacting instead of being in faith. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that indignant people are not people in faith. You can be indignant or you can be a person of faith. But you can't be both. Jairus, as a synagogue ruler, should have stopped, rebuked, and redirected her. It would have been right to do so in his natural, custom, legalistic, religious responsibility. Everybody would have seen it that way. But you know what this was for him? This was a test. Not of the emergency broadcast system. <laughs> he could have flunked right here, and he would have never received his miracle. 
He continued to walk in mercy and honor and humility. In other words, he sowed a mercy seed when he could have sowed a religion seed. Come on, church. I said he could have sown what? A religion seed. Look at somebody and tell them, sow a mercy seed instead of a religion seed. Even though he's the one in power here, he's walking in humility. Instead of being put out and offended by that legalism, he chose to what? Give mercy. Now, the other side of that coin is, since the man's obviously very sharp, if he did it for her, come on, church, if he did it for her, that he can do it for me. I'm not going to be offended. I'm not going to be put out. I'm not going to let this legalism or religion ruin me. I'm not going to fail the test. What I'm going to do is use it to exercise my faith and build my faith. If he did this on the way, then what could he possibly do when we get there? What an amazing contrast to this other synagogue ruler. Raised up, they could have even gone to the same synagogue ruler school, who knows. Amen. One in faith, one in legalism. Look at somebody and say, get rid of the religion. Ignore your religion. You need to understand that miracles may not come nicely boxed and packaged with a bow. They might be messy. I mean, absolutely mess up everything you think you thought. <laughs> thought you think. It's not going to be simple, necessarily, you know, all put out there like it always was. And in terms of the Great Awakening, you're going to see some things you've probably never seen before. And if you're not careful, instead of setting your religion aside and looking through the eyes of grace and mercy, the way the Lord would look at things, you're going to miss out on some things. But you're the Overcomers Club. This is a Wednesday night crowd. You can give me a better amen than that. This is the Overcomers Club. You're not going to miss out on a miracle because it's different to you. Could you imagine the horror when Jesus spits on somebody's tongue? Could you imagine the dinner table that night? Can you believe what he did? Man, I've been thrown up. I've been absolutely disgusted. And then somebody at the dinner table says, well, there was a healing one there. Was God's word not fulfilled that day? Now, now, trust me on this, okay? You better hear from God before you go spitting on somebody's tongue. <laughs> Especially in the era of COVID. You're going to get a response you didn't expect. <laughs> what would have happened, though, if Jairus had had a religious fit instead? I'll tell you what he would have been doing he would have been burying his daughter. Biggest obstacles to the miracle are not outside of us. First thing you've got to do is ignore your religion. And everybody in this room has it. I don't care how you were raised. Amen? How many of y'all were raised heathen? A couple of you. How many of y'all were raised Lutheran? How many of y'all were raised Catholic? Baptist? Methodist. Some of y'all ain't going to raise your hand for nothing. All right, I wasn't raised at all. Not even here tonight. Every, I haven't named you yet. We don't have all night, do we? <laughs> what are you anyway? You have to think about it? Assembly of God Nazarene. You're a hodgepodge. You're like, my, like my mom, that's for sure. It, it may come as a shock to you, but even Assemblies of God people can have religion in them. Pentecostal people can have religion. 
in them. This sounds reasonable and it's passed down from generation to generation, but when you get to the heart of what the scripture says, you know, and we don't have to make a big to do about this, you know, I am the big religion exposer. I'm not talking about that. Your job is not to expose everybody else's religion. Your job is when it's exposed to you to choose to go with the word rather than the religion. This is a personal thing. But I can tell you this, if you sit under the word of God long enough, especially where the word is esteemed and valued, where there's anointed listeners, say I'm an anointed listener. We talk about anointed speakers. We need to talk more about anointed listeners, ears to hear. When you have anointed speakers and anointed listeners, you have a lot of great revelation going forth. But sooner or later, when you're doing this, there's going to come out a revelation that absolutely goes contrary to your religion. And you will have, at that moment, a decision to make. Now, some people, it happens a lot to them because they were raised in legalism or raised in religion. And it just goes crosswise to, to, to what the Word of God actually says. And it's okay as long as you say, I'm going to set that aside and go with the Word of God. And I tell you, people have been in this a long time have that experience. God may use a pastor. God may use a special speaker. Dr. Barkley may come in here and absolutely aggravate you. But instead, yeah, on purpose too, not even by accident. <laughs> he has that spiritual gift. And if you don't do what he says, he'll make you do 50. Being an ex-Marine, he'll make you do 50 right there in front of everybody. (laughs) The key is, whatever the Spirit of God is trying to tell you, you do not need to value your religion more than you do the miracle. See, I value the Word. I value the Spirit of God. I value the miracle more than my religion. Now, you know, you're, you're here tonight, so you know, for the most part, I would say you're navigating this process well. Um, I'm not even responsible to help you navigate it. I'm responsible for preaching the truth in love. But I would be you know, remiss if I didn't tell you that there have been people from time to time can't handle it. They choke on the word because it absolutely runs contrary to their religion. Everything Jairus knew, everything he'd been taught, everything he'd ever studied and known, he abandoned at that moment. Can you see that? And I promise you there were natural consequences. Even though he got his daughter back, there were natural consequences to his conduct that day. But that was okay with him because he'd heard the truth and the truth has set him free. He was not going to be walking with Jesus anyway. Does that make sense? Now, the attitude is what I'm talking about here. You and I have to understand that our attitude is is a big, uh, you know, determining factor in whether we receive from God or not. Why? Because our thoughts produce our feelings, and our feelings produce our words, and our words produce our actions. Our attitude is tied to that concept. And the attitude is, who does she think she is? She's interfering. She's delaying Jesus getting. Who is she? She should be locked up somewhere. She's unclean. He threw all of that out, and I'm challenging you to throw your religion out whenever the word goes crossways with it. Look at somebody and tell them, stick with the word of God. Come on, say, stick with the word of God. Uh, I was raised certain things about communion that is very foreign to evangelicals and Pentecostals as a Lutheran. Am I right about it, Jim? Uh, 
we, we partake communion, and it starts out just being an element, but what happens to it? It becomes literally the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, talking about wanting to gross out a six-year-old, I don't want no blood, no body. I don't know. And the Catholics. Everybody say, God bless the Lutherans. God bless the Catholics. I say, there aren't any born-again Catholics. Yes, there are. That's your religion talking. Be careful, Pharisee. There are born-again Catholics. It's like there are born-again Lutherans. And some of them don't move forward. No, they don't. They have strongholds and they have issues in their life. Amen. Everybody say, God bless the Catholics. Once that priest blesses those elements, what are they? They are now, not a representation. When we give you a little cup with a wafer on it and juice underneath the plastic that you can't get open, <laughs> and you're embarrassed, some of y'all just stick it in the pocket and act like you're participating. <laughs> uh, the, they don't become nothing. They're nothing to begin with, and they become nothing. They are symbols of what? Reality. Of the crucified Son of God. What he did with his body, how he shed his blood, our confidence and our faith is, is not in a, in a plastic cup or a little wafer. Do you see this? It's, it's not in the grape juice. It's, those are symbols, but that's not the way it is in every tradition. Could you imagine coming to one of our churches after learning that and being, being pounded into all your life and somebody tell you that it's not the blood, it is not the body? You got a choice right then and there. Amen. Imagine being told, for example, that uh, what the Pope says is not equal to what the Word says. And when it contradicts the Word of God, you have every right and authority to reject it. In that culture, in that religion, are you here? Up in Indiana is a monastery in Ferdinand. It's not too far from, uh, you know, Santa Claus, Indiana. And a few years back, we took uh, Mark to uh, Holiday World and Mark Randall, and we went up to see this place, a beautiful place, beautiful, you know, church, only nine yards. And uh, we walked into the church, and inside the church was a little, you know, shelter, portico, inside the building. And underneath that portico was a protected area, a railed area, and a table. And on that table was a glass container. And underneath that glass container was bread. Bread that had already been blessed. Bread technically, in their mind, that was what? The body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Tim didn't know what was under the glass. And it just looked like bread to him. <laughs> and he was just about to lift the lid off of that. And I said, no! You're going to get us all killed, man. These, these, these nuns are going to come out here with machetes and take our heads off. No! <laughs> he put it down. And she, she just walked away. Marcus just cracking up. You know what the side of him doing that. But if you're raised in this stuff, and then suddenly you have a choice to make. Now, biblically, who is correct? It becomes the blood and the body, it is the blood and the body, or it's a symbol of the blood and the body. 
We know beyond a shadow of a doubt. Are you here tonight? Look at somebody and say, get rid of your religion. Let it go. Um, Baptism. Small theological wars have been fought over baptism. (laughs) I was confirmed Lutheran, but before I was confirmed Lutheran, I was baptized as an infant. Baptized. I was actually sprinkled as an infant. Some of you are raised in denominational churches, and you, even though you don't remember, <laughs> yeah, I remember when I was sprinkled. No, you don't. Um, that is an interpretation of what baptism is. But the word baptism, baptism, it actually literally means to immerse in a body of water or liquid capable of actually submerging whatever it is you're baptizing. So in 1984, April 22nd, uh, the water was terribly cold at Kentucky Lake. I was baptized. Not sprinkled as an infant, but as a believer. Um, you could hear something like that, and you could say to yourself, well, I was sprinkled as an infant, and that's the way it is. Look, you need to be old enough to understand sin and salvation. Redemption and Redeemer. And if that's you, Sunday night, you should submit to baptism if you never have. You or your family members. Amen? You should follow the Lord in, in water baptism. But small wars have been fought over this issue. And so I'm talking in big generalities right now, you know, uh, you know, communion, water baptism. But religion can hit you at any moment and rise up out of your spirit and say, well, that's not the way I always heard it. Amen? Some of you were raised being taught that God will beat you up just to prove he can put you back together again. Yeah, he's trying to teach you a lesson. Well, how long have you had that thing? 35 years. Won't you learn your lesson? And, I mean, this stuff just gets in there. Well, all things work together for them that what? The most ripped out of context scripture anywhere. So you're sitting under the word. Finally, somebody takes that scripture and puts it back in the chapter. And the chapter is actually talking about God working all things together for the good of those that love him through praying in tongues. There's the context. Not God works everything out, all these crappy things and horrible things that happen to you and all these people that got beat up and run over and destroyed. All of a sudden, now God's going to take, you know, those things and work it all to the good. That's not this at all. It's God using your prayer language and your ministry to make all things what? Good. Look at somebody say, that's what's called a context. Religion would just say, well, you know, I'm, I'm sorry that your house burned down and your dog ran away and your cat hates your guts and your kids won't see you. But God works all things together for good. That's just as much anathema in the ears of God. And some of the things that are taught in traditions that you and I would want nothing to do with. When that religion, everybody say religion three times. When that religion is confronted with the uncompromised word of God, you have a choice to make. Well, Pastor, what happens if it happens and I just kind of try to hold on to that? When you are confronted by the Spirit of God over some deeply held belief that contradicts the word of God, if you do not yield to that word, you will be stuck right there the rest of your life. You will not move forward. 
And who wants to live the rest of their lives never growing in Christ? Amen. So when somebody tells you there's a new birth and you're raised like me, you listen to it. When the Bible says you must be born again, what do you do? You get born again. You don't say I was baptized as an infant and I was confirmed. Therefore I'm good. The grace of the church, the grace of our Lord and Savior is on my life. No, you do what Scripture says. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Guess what? If Nicodemus, a Jew of Jews, had to be what? Born again? Then you and I have to be born again. When the Word of God says through Jesus' own teaching, wait in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high, he expected people that were his disciples to show up. Religion says today, if you're an evangelical, when you got born again, you got all the Holy Spirit there is. That's religion. Apparently, a lot of people in Jesus' day, before he, you know, given this command, were open to his teaching. But when he gave them the command to wait into Jerusalem, when the Spirit of God was going to fall, 120 out of 500 eyewitnesses only showed up. What did they choose? Religion, experience, you know, things that they were taught over what he was actually offering at that moment. Go right down the line. Whether it's about faith or healing or the supernatural or miracles or God's desire to take care of his people or knee-jerk reactions to words like prosperity or rich or wholeness or divine health or healing, whatever it is in the Word of God that you can see, or God giving you and believing for long life, you will always find people having knee-jerk religious reactions to that just because you can't see or hear it. doesn't mean it's not there. Now, I've had them, so I know you have too. And some of you have probably had quite a few of them sitting under this ministry. It's to your credit as you continue growing in God. Look at somebody and say he's preaching better than you're shouting right now. What am I saying? When religion is hit with the truth, you need to be willing to unlearn the things you learned that were wrong. And Jairus got schooled that day. Amen. Schooled in the grace of God. Are you still here? Say it with me. I'm I'm ready. I'm ready to receive. Aren't you glad he didn't see this as an interruption? Aren't you glad he didn't see this as some kind of a sideshow? Well, we serve a loving God. For years, Oral Roberts would say, God's got something good for you. God's going to do something good in your life today. And do you know that people... (laughs) would actually write and call in and demand he stop saying that. Stop saying God is good. Could you imagine being so completely immersed and pickled in religion that you would get offended over a man of God saying God is good? Shout this out with me. God is good. good. Come on, say it again. God is good. He has goodness stored up for me. He is nothing but good that you would, every year, at a National Methodist gathering, they would try to strip him of his credentials to preach. Every year it would come up. And every year they had the good sense to leave him alone. It's kind of like Gamaliel, you know. You want to make sure you're not doing this and opposing God. 
the miracles and the teaching and the confirmation, you know, all that we need to know. And tens of thousands healed, hundreds of thousands, millions impacted by the gospel. But all they could hear was, God's not good. Why? They were taught somewhere that God's your problem, not your solution. Amen. Say, God's not my problem. Say, my God is my solution. You want to overcome the obstacles to miracle? First of all, overcome and ignore your religion. Let it just sit there, hallelujah. Amen. It's different for different people. Um, when I first got born again, I received the baptism of the Holy Ghost the same night, uh, June 3rd, 1982. Yes, it took me two years to submit to baptism because I had to unlearn what I'd been taught about baptism. And you know that not one person, not the campus pastor, not people in leadership, not even Susan, she was there. No one said nothing to me. Nobody got on my case about it. But the Spirit of God kept saying to me, you need to follow the Lord in baptism. You need to follow the Lord in baptism. And that night, it was so cold. It was like the middle of the night, you know, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock in the morning. We went out there. And I, it, that water was so cold, I shot out like a rocket. It's the fastest. I've been in water all my life. It's the fastest I ever shot out of water in my entire life. <laughs> it was cold. That was, that was one area for me. But the first thing I started doing was voraciously just reading Scripture. And I read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and Acts, and I just said to myself, Self, every time somebody came to Jesus and asked them for healing, he gave it to them. So when I started hearing after I got into an evangelical church that God put sickness on people to teach them something, it went directly contradictory to the Word of God. Now, I don't profess to have it all figured out. Don't get me wrong. There are variables that affect our receiving from God that, that involve faith, but it's not just faith. So understand what I'm saying to you. All I'm saying to you is this is the gospel record that he is a healer. He's a restorer. And it just it, it wasn't something that, that ever, ever bothered me because I, I didn't get baptized. I didn't get exposed to religion on that yet. We never heard anything about these things growing up, basically. And if it did, it was in passing. But my first exposure to a theology of healing came by just reading the Gospels myself and settled the issue. And your first reaction is, every time they ask, he does it. And if, it, and if the teaching that he put something on you to teach you was true, then why didn't Jesus do that to anybody? It's kind of like I asked a person who's an anthropologist and an evolutionist, he's a scientist and taught in university. He said, I said, how many half-man, half-ape creatures must there have been to make this transition over time to where we become like we are now? I said, I said, hundreds? Oh, no, 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 not hundreds. Thousands? Oh, no, no, not thousands. Hundreds of thousands? Oh, no, no, not hundreds. A million? Yes, there'd be millions of these. I said, where are they? Where are the millions of half-man, half-ape creatures in the fossil record? Where are they? Not a couple of fabrications. You should be able to see them everywhere. You should be able to go home tonight, dig a hole, and find a half-man, half-ape creature. If what he said was true. The evidence says what? We were created in the image of God. The fossil record is just not there. When I open up the Gospels and I see where he healed them all, 
every, each, all, those are the descriptors of his ministry. Are you here tonight? And I can't find one time where he says, my father has ordained to teach you a lesson, so here's your blindness, here's your sickness, here's your leprosy. Not once. So that teaching is a lie from the pit of hell. It's the only way to describe it. It is a lie from the pit of hell. God is not responsible for our sickness, our disease. Disease and sickness is the result of a fallen world. And he graciously gives us through divine healing, divine health, the restoration of the body, the glorification of the body for his purpose on this planet. He does this by his grace. It's God responding to the problem. He's not the source of the problem. He didn't introduce sin. Therefore, he did not introduce sickness. He provided the remedy for both. But I am telling you, when I first came to this church and I preached a series on healing, some of the most senior members of this church got thoroughly upset with me for daring to say that Jesus is a healer. You know why? Because their teaching and their doctrine and their experience was that this was a natural part and God could even not only allow but put this on you if he so chose to. Where did they get that from? Somebody taught that. And you need to know that like the assemblies of God, we're a hodgepodge. We're like the ragtag gang. We come from everywhere. There are more Baptists in this church than people that were raised classical Pentecostals. Everybody say, God bless the Baptists. But I can tell you this, if you were raised a Baptist and you're still in this church, you've gotten used to throwing your religion out and accepting the word. We lost you a long time ago. Amen? For example, if you were taught that you get saved, that you cannot turn your back on God, that sounds real good. It just doesn't square with Scripture. God's not going to force you to go to heaven. Not before you got saved, not while you're saved, not after you get saved. You never lose your ability to choose. If when you got saved, God ripped out your chooser, then you'd be just like the angels in heaven. You'd just be like a robot. That's not what he wants. Why are you laboring this point? Because I'm telling you, a lot of people... Their miracles are blocked by internal misbeliefs and false beliefs surrounded by religion. And when the word comes, you've got to say, I want the word. I want what the word says. Amen. Not one time do you see Jesus afflicting anybody. How could you establish a doctrine that God makes people sick when you don't see Jesus do it one time? Let me help you out here. When you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. So what's the Father's attitude towards it? Well, if he went around, what? Healing the sick, amen? Preaching, teaching, and healing, that's a revelation of the nature of his Father. Come on, say it with me, not one time. Now watch this, communion, baptism, theology of healing, those are just examples Yours may not be that pronounced. The thing that's stuck in your crawl religiously may be a little more subtle than that. But whatever it is, you don't want to give up God's best. we got to give credit to Jairus. He could have and probably would have acted just like that other synagogue ruler. But instead, he chose 
the revelation of God. Mercy and grace. That we haven't gotten there yet. And if you want the rest of the story, I guess you're just going to have to show up Sunday morning to get it. Uh, (laughs) But we know at the end of the story, he's with Jesus, Jesus is still with him, and that little girl got up. I said she got up. He got his what? He got his miracle. He put, he put the word above religion and he got his miracle. Come on, give the Lord a hand clap and thank God for that.